we're, we're finishing today. We're finishing our series that we've been in for the last four weeks on the cross, the cross of Jesus. We're asking the question, what does the death of Jesus have to do with me? Why is it good news for us? What does it do for us? We've called this the series In Our Place. Uh, and today we're up to our, our final week on the, uh, the question of why does the death of Jesus matter for us? Um, so we've, what, the way we've done that is we've taken five of the biblical pictures, metaphors, word pictures that are in, in, in the word to explain the death of Jesus to us. In the first week, we looked at this idea of exile, that Jesus was cast out of the people of God so that we might be brought into the people of God. He was forsaken on the cross so that we might be welcome at the dinner table of, of the Lord. He was cast out in our place. On Good Friday, Matt took us to the picture of the temple where the sacrifice was made, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that His blood was shed to wash us of our sin. Week three, we looked at this idea of victory, that Jesus, in His death, was conquering evil and death forever, specifically death. He was conquering death so that now we can walk free from the fear of death because we know that death is not the end. The Lord has destroyed death. He holds the keys of death, he says. Last week, we saw how his death was a ransom for us. It was a, he paid the price in his blood, not with, not with silver or gold, but he paid the price for us to redeem us from our slavery with his own precious blood. And today, we turn to our final metaphor in the, in, in the, uh, in the series, and that is the question of justice. The image is that of a law court where we stand guilty and condemned before the judge. And in the cross, Jesus takes the punishment we deserve so that we might walk free. We are declared innocent through the cross of Jesus. This is our last metaphor we have to look at today. Jesus takes our guilt and makes us righteous. Uh, let us pray. We've prayed already a few times. So let's pray again uh, that the Lord would open our ears today to hear. Lord, I just want to pray exactly what I just said, Lord, that you would open areas to hear, Lord. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us hearts that are ready to receive the truth. Lord, your truth is found in your word, Lord. And this is a truth that today is genuinely difficult for us. Genuinely difficult for us, Lord. It is hard to receive, but Lord, we know that hard words make us soft because they break down our defenses, Lord, and they make us tender. And make us ready to follow you, Lord. And so I pray that today your word would do its work. And that we would be faithful hearers today. And that we would respond in faith. Amen. All right, I want to start today in a way that I'm, um, I'm sure it's been done by a preacher somewhere, but I've never heard someone do this, so let me just try it. I'm going to start today by sharing what I think is the biggest objection to Christianity uh, that I think exists in the world. This is my opinion, so there might be better ones out there. But this is, in my opinion, the biggest objection to the Christian faith. Of all the questions out there, of all the objections, of all the issues people will raise with our faith, this one, I think, stands out. Um, you might think it's weird that I start with this or raise it at all at a church, but I think, guys, it'd be worse if we just never addressed it and if we pretend this didn't exist. The problem, in my opinion, is the problem of evil and suffering in the world. The problem of evil and suffering in the world. The ancient Greek philosopher, Epicurus, 
back in like, when did he live? 340 to 278 BC. So this is hundreds of years before Jesus, right? He put it in, I think, the clearest way. And since then, it's been recycled in various forms, specifically by David Hume. He's famous for, for his kind of articulation of this idea. So when Epicurus said this, he wasn't actually talking about Jesus or Christianity. He was talking about religion in general. But uh, David Hume certainly was talking about um, Jesus. Okay, David Hume said this, basically. You have two options. Option one, God is willing to prevent evil, but he can't do it. So he is impotent, right? He, he, he wants to, but he can't. His hands are tied. He, there's something stopping him from uh, curing the problem of evil in the world. So that's, that, that's your first option. Your second option is he, want, he, he um, he's able to do it. He has the power to do it, but he doesn't want to, which means he can't be good. So you've got to choose. Is your God impotent or not good? Christians, there's your problem, right? How can you have a good, all-powerful God? Do you see the problem? Suffering exists in the world. Therefore, the Christian God makes no sense, right? That's the, that's the problem. All right. Um, firstly, what I'll say is the, the logic there is not as airtight as it sounds. <laughs> that's, I'll just say that to start with. But look, I'd love to do a whole message just on that question where we just plumb the depths of, of dismantling that at depth. And if that's something that, honestly, you would like to do, there's plenty of amazing people, much smarter than me, that have done a much better job uh, at digging into that one on some comprehensive responses. So if you'd like to dig into that question, I'll happily give you some wonderful things. But today, let me just say enough. Um, the first point to make about that question is, guys, the problem of evil is not a problem just for Christians. It is a problem for every single person that has ever lived. No matter what you believe about the world, you have to answer the question of, of making sense of the existence of evil in the world. This is not just for Christians. Well, regardless of your religious or secular, all the worldviews that have ever existed have faced the exact same problem of trying to figure out what to do with it. And I think Christianity, hands down, has the best answer, by the way. Hands down. Hands down. For example, if you're a secular and you decide, you know what? The existence of suffering and evil in the world means there cannot be a God because of what he just said, uh, the guy made of stone. Um, and you decide that that problem of evil leads you away from God, and you, you conclude there can't be a God because of suffering in the world. In walking away from the belief in God, you are making the problem infinitely bigger. Infinitely bigger. Because what is your alternative? I'll tell you what your alternative is. Effectively, you end up in a place where you have to say, you, have, you end up in a place where you have no real moral basis to say evil even exists. You have no reason to believe that evil actually even exists. You're in, so, in the world, you look around, you see evil, you see oppression, you see obvious injustice. You kind of have to say, well, what can, like, is that wrong? Is, it, is that even wrong? How can you say that, you know, nat nature says the strong eat the weak, doesn't it? So who are you to say any different? What is your reason? You have no reason. You end up in a place where if you remove God from the picture, evil and suffering become meaningless. Meaningless. And you know that's not true because you know there is such thing as, as evil in the world. On a personal level, I find this incredibly convincing. 
this is a this is a problem that I think every person has to wrestle with, every Christian has to wrestle with. In my own experience wrestling through this, this is my always always my first thought. Who has a better answer than Jesus of Nazareth to this question? Absolutely no one. The atheist will say, well, you, well, suffering and evil is meaningless. Just get to grips with that. Good luck. No. That makes no sense because we know it's real. You're telling me to deny my basic humanity. So I go with, I go with Peter on, on this one. Peter, when, Jesus, when something hard happens in the ministry of Jesus and Jesus comes to his disciples and says, what, do you want to leave me as well like everyone else? Peter says to him, Jesus, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. It might be hard but you have the words of eternal life. Where else am I going to go? And that is exactly how I feel. Where else are we going to go to answer this question of evil and suffering in the world? The Christian story, the biblical story, gives us so much, so much to make sense of evil and suffering in the world. Again, those guys don't understand it. But there really is so much to make sense of evil and suffering in the world. There, it really should be different. Suffering isn't normal. Evil isn't normal. It is an intrusion into our good and good world, and it is not God's intention. And friends, there is coming a day where he will right every wrong and correct every evil. Evil will not exist forever. He will undo it. Uh, to quote my, my good friend who pastors a ch- oh, used to pastor a church, a suburb over, he's got a cracking little book called Questioning Christianity, and he says this, He says, far from disproving God then, it seems to me that our apprehension of evil as a moral reality and our intuition that the train of this world is off its tracks serves as a kind of soft evidence for the truth of Christianity. Entire books of the Bible are devoted to delving into the dark side of our human experience. The Bible's not a trite book. It is very realistic. Trust me. It understands this problem. What I discovered when I searched into the Christian story was that Christianity makes a whole lot of sense in not only speaking to our pain, but in describing why it is we, re- we, re- we react to it the way we do. So, again, if you want to dive more into that problem, happy to show you some good resources. I bring up the problem of evil for a reason. Problem of evil. One day, the Bible says quite clearly, one day there is a day coming when the Lord will judge and bring justice and undo evil forever. There is a day coming where he will fully and finally correct the evil that we see. Here's the problem. It includes us because we fall underneath condemnation of God here. Let me read to you just two passages to start. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Judgment day is coming. Hebrews. As it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So that's the good news about Jesus, right? He has come to deal with this problem. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, 
So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Friends, judgment day is coming. Judgment day is coming. That is actually wonderful news. It doesn't sound like it, but it's actually wonderful news. Do you know why? One day, evil will be destroyed. Oppression will not exist anymore. God will correct it. Justice will be done. Evil will be destroyed. Injustice in our world that we see today everywhere is temporary at best. It cannot exist forever because God will not allow it to exist forever. There is a day where God will right every wrong. Everyone that appears to have gotten away with evil over the centuries, nothing, no one is getting away with anything, trust me. There will be final justice. This is good news for us because we know that injustice is wrong. And we know that there must be price paid for it. We know there must be a price. This is the good news of Judgment Day. It is coming and every evil will, will, face, its, will face its justice. Here's the bad news. I already said it before. You're a part of that problem. Because you are culpable in the evil in this world. We all are. We are culpable to the evil of this world. Let me share this from um, Alexander Sols. Oh, I'm not going to be able to say his name. Sols Henetsen. He's famous, and I don't know how to say his name, I'm sorry. Um, look, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. He was a famous uh, dissident of the um, Soviet Union, um, writing against the horrors of the Gulag system. I don't know how to say his name. Um, some of you do, which is great. He says this, if only it was so simple, right? If only they were evil people that we could, uh, you know, somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and then destroy them. Wouldn't that be convenient? There's the evil ones, get rid of them, perfect utopia, right? No, no injustice for the rest of time, right? That's not how it works. He says, the dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So if you can imagine that, that we are the global population on the earth, everyone in this room, we can't just say, like, we'll put the line there, and those are the evil ones, those are the good ones, right? That's not how the world works. That's not how good and evil works. That's how comic book movies make it look, right? But that's not how it works. The dividing line doesn't go through the room. It goes through every one of us. It's like we're all standing in a line, and the line goes straight through us, right? We are part of the problem. There is evil in us. We are selfish by nature. Every parent in the room goes, yeah, it's true. I've raised kids. They are selfish by nature. It is just in us. And so it's not a case of just isolating all the evil people and doing away with them and going, justice done, right? No problems anymore. Again, political systems through time have tried it, and it's been horrific, right? It does not work. Evil is not just out there. It is in here. It is in this room. It is in us. It is in us. Friends, we are not just victims of evil, although we are. We, we, we are. We're not just victims, we're also perpetrators. This is why the judgment day of God is a two-edged sword for us all. Because we all crave justice, but we all fall underneath its right condemnation. Before the judgment seat of the Lord, we stand guilty. This is why the cross of Jesus is so important. This is why the cross of Jesus is such good news for all of us. We all stand guilty, and the death of Jesus is God's definitive answer to the problem of 
evil and suffering in the world. It is the definitive answer to the question of justice. How is it that we will receive mercy and yet justice won't go undone? How is it? So we look at this in two questions. Um, Firstly, the first question is, how does the cross change your tomorrow? And the tomorrow I'm talking about is the tomorrow, right? The judgment day tomorrow. That's coming. That day is out there. How does the cross change that day? Secondly, how does the cross change your today? Right? The, the, the one we're living now, how does the cha- cross change our tomorrow? How does it change our today? Um, would you turn with me? We're going to go to one more passage, which is Revelation 20. Uh, we've gone to two already, but this one, I think, strikes, it paints a particular picture, which I think is worth us seeing. The imagery of this is quite alive. This is where all of history is ultimately going. This is the tomorrow that we're all going to see one day. The Apostle John writes this. This is a vision. He says, Then I saw a great white throne. White representing what? Holiness, purity, perfection. Right? The great white throne. And him who was seated on it. And from his presence... Earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you have two types of books, right? The books and then the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up their dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up their dead who were in it, and they were judged each one of them, according to what they have done. Then death and Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. So death is destroyed forever. That's the imagery there. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Whatever that is trying to say is not good. We can leave it there. At the great final judgment... Before the great white throne, Jesus will execute a final judgment upon the world. Again, as great news for us and terrifying news for us. The books containing all we have done will be opened. And on the basis of our own works, we will be judged. Our own works. So there'll be no one else to blame. Every sinful act, every thought, every motive will be exposed. Everything we should have done but didn't. Everything we didn't do but should have will be before us. Hebrews 4.13 says this, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who, to whom we must give an account. He sees it all. There's a day coming where we will have the books opened. Right? It'll be exposed. This is, this is our tomorrow. Okay? Imagine with me for a moment, just to make this day kind of come home for us, if you had an invisible tape recorder, that hung around your neck that you couldn't see, but was there, and just recorded every time. It's like turned on every time you said the words, well, I think people should, or people really shouldn't, and then just recorded whatever you said there. And then at the end of time, if, if, if the judgment was literally just God just putting on the tape recorder and letting you hear what you've said, and then judging you by your own standards, you would fail, right? So we end up in a place where, yeah, we fail our own test of righteousness, let alone God's holy, perfect law, which is without fault. We fail even our own ridiculous, lowly human standards. And so we stand there before the judge guilty. There's nothing else to do. No defense can be 
offered. And so we stand in the dock awaiting our sentencing. This is where all of humanity will find itself eventually. Have you ever spent time considering that moment? Maybe today's a good, a good place to start. One day, we will stand before him. Have you thought about that before? Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that day? Some of us here are absolutely not ready because we know that our sin is upon our heads. We know that we have refused the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. So we are not ready for that day. Listen, today would be a fantastic day to get ready for that day. This moment here would be a great moment to hear the, God, the call of God on your life to repent and believe and to put your faith in Jesus and to receive that forgiveness that is there for you. It is there for you. What do we read in Revelation 20? There's another book, right? What's in the other book? It's the book of life. Not a book of deeds, but a book of life in whose names are written those who have received forgiveness from Jesus. To go back to the, the law court scene, right? As you stand in the dock guilty and ready to be sentenced, guilty beyond a doubt by your own testimony on the tape recorder, what, can, what, what must God do? He must condemn us, right? Otherwise, like, okay, look, if a judge today saw evidence, overwhelming evidence, and without a doubt there was a million witnesses, and they said, yeah, but it's okay, and they let you walk, we fire that judge and send him to prison because he's been perverting justice, do you understand? A good and holy judge cannot just do anything other than sentence condemnation. This is where the cross comes in, right? Unless another comes and takes your place. Unless your sin is placed on another. Becoming a Christian is where Jesus takes your sin from you. Takes it from your shoulders and places it on his shoulders. And he takes it to the cross. And in its place, he gives you his perfect righteousness. So that you don't just like walk away with a clean slate. You walk away with his perfect righteousness. You are clothed in his perfection. You are not just acquitted of guilt and wrongdoing. You are declared righteous before God on that day. Declared righteous. His life in place of your life. His guilt on your shoulders. Free gift. This is the gospel, right? This is a free gift. There's nothing we can do to earn this gift. There's nothing we bring to the table but our own sin and our own need and our own mess. And the Lord takes all of that upon himself and gives us his perfect righteousness. He brings everything to the table. Brings a bloodstained cross. Brings a hand of friendship. Brings a seat at the table. This is the good news, that we get to receive salvation from our Lord. Have you received it? Have you received the gift of God in the gospel? Have you received the bloodstained cross of Jesus? Or to put it in the language of Revelation 20, have you had your name written in the book of life so that on that day, stand with confidence, not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done for you? Do you have your name written in the book of life? Or are you currently right now underneath 
God's good and right judgment? Are you under that judgment today? Listen, if that's you, I pray you'll respond today and I'd ask that you come and talk to me because I'd love to pray with you about this. I'd love to pray with you about this. I'd also love to invite you to our coming Alpha course as well where we'll be able to talk at this at length. For the Christians in the room, for Anogra Church, this should be a very sobering day, a sobering thought for us as well. Judgment Day is coming. Judgment Day is coming. And right now, around you, are many who are headed for destruction. Reality really is that black and white. We'd like to make it a bit more gray if we can, but no, the Lord makes it black and white for us. He tells us, Jesus tells us himself, wide is the road that leads to destruction and many take it. Would we hear that warning, that reminder, that prod to urgency? Because Jesus has commissioned you to take the news to the world. Jesus has commissioned you to be his messenger. So let us pray. Let us pray, let us pray, let us pray. Pray for our world. Pray for courage. Let's take action, sharing the good news. Let us live our lives with sacrificial love and compassion as Jesus taught us to do, as he modeled for us. And let us share our faith with as much boldness as we can and sincerity of heart sacrificial lives again we are running an alpha for exactly this reason right because we believe that the gospel is good news to be shared we believe that there is a lot of people who need it badly so we're praying for this course we're trusting the lord will use it we're praying that people will respond to the invitations that that come from your mouths pray that you would consider that cross, Jesus changes our tomorrow, frees us from fear of judgment. Our sins are pardoned full and free in Christ's death. It's good news. It's good news, and yet it is sobering, isn't it? Tim Keller put it like this. He says, God does not turn his justice aside, right? He is not, he's not ignoring your sin. Rather, he's turning it upon himself. cross changes our tomorrow, frees us from judgment. How does the cross change our today? What does it mean for it? Like, how does it change us now? That's the question. I think it is very possible from experience and from pastoring for us to know, to have faith, to know we are forgiven, and yet to entirely fail to apprehend that in our own lives. We can be objectively, our names can be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, right? And yet we can still live under the sense of condemnation. Do you remember Romans 8 verse 1? There is now no, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen. Thank you very much. Um, let me share this from, from, from the words of C.S. Lewis. He, he tells a story himself. Uh, this is 1951, so he's 53 years old. He's been a Christian for a lot of his life by now. And yet, he says that he discovered forgiveness <laughs> late in his life, relatively, right? Long after his initial conversion. He says this in a letter to an Italian priest. So he struck up a friendship with a priest, and, and he was writing backwards and forwards. And he speaks of the great awakening 
to the joy of the gospel. He says this, during the past year, a great joy has befallen me. I love that because we use that word befallen to mean bad things. Well, at least that's how I think of the word. But this is like, it just happened to me, right? It's like, it just befell me, right? This great joy just happened. Difficult though it is, he says, I shall try to explain it in this in words. It is astonishing that sometimes we believe what we believe, but really in our heart, we do not believe. For a long time, I believed that I was forgiven. I, was, I believed in the forgiveness of sins. But then suddenly, this truth appeared in my mind so clear a light that I perceived that I had never before, and that after many confessions and absolutions, that I had believed it with my whole heart. So great is the difference between mere affirmation by the intellect and that faith fixed in the very marrow as if it were palpable. He says, perhaps I was granted this deliverance in response to your intercession on my behalf. And then he has a go at the priest in a, in a gentle way. He says, this emboldens me to say to you something that a layman ought scarcely say to a priest, nor a junior to a senior. He says, on the other hand, out of the mouth of babes, indeed, out, uh, indeed as once to Balaam, out of the mouth of an ass. Um, it is this, you write too much about your sins. You write much about your own sins. Beware, permit me, my, uh, permit me, my dearest father, to say beware, lest humility should pass over into anxiety or sadness. It is bidden us to rejoice and to always rejoice. Listen, Jesus has canceled the handwriting that was against us, so lift up your hearts. He's saying we can be so aware of our own sin and fail to rejoice in what God has actually done. So aware. So fixated, so inwardly focused, we fail to cast our eyes up and see the grace that is there, that is beautiful, that is there. And he, talk, he keeps talking about this moment. So he had this moment where the joy befell him. He said five years later, he was talking about the same moment. He said, he said I had assented to the doctrine years earlier, and I would have said that I believed it. And then one blessed day, it suddenly became real to me, and I made what I had previously called belief look unreal. It was a wonderful thing. He's like, I, would have, I said I believed it for years and years and years and years, but now what I thought was belief is like unreal. It didn't, it wasn't true because it wasn't, it, it, I didn't actually believe it in my heart, he says. Two years later, he says, one more time, right? He says, I'd been a Christian for many years before I really believed in the forgiveness of sins. Or more strictly, that my theoretical belief became a reality to me. Again, all these things came after he wrote most of his famous books, of which he's well known for. And yet despite his belief, despite his profession of faith, the gospel hadn't actually clicked for him yet, had it? It hadn't really, hadn't really clicked in his heart. It was still for him hypothetical. He had received hypothetical forgiveness, hypothetical mercy, conceptual grace. And yet one day it clicked clicked. Grace befell him. A great joy befell him. So here is a man who is objectively, right? On the last day, his, 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 his name was written in the book of life. Of course it was. He trusted Jesus on that final day. Objectively justified. And yet, subjectively, was trapped. Had no joy in his life before the Lord. He had not experienced the freedom of the forgiveness of his sins. Do you know the difference 
between hypothetical forgiveness and real life-changing forgiveness? Have you experienced that great joy befalling you? Have you experienced the full and final grace, the full and final forgiveness of Christ being poured into your hearts so that it melts you? Do you know what it is to feel forgiven? Not just know you're forgiven, but feel forgiven. Experience that freedom. It's for you. Christ would have it for you. How do we get there? How do we get there? I think you know the answer, guys. The doorway into that experience is down. It's down. It's when we sink into the knowledge of our own sin and our own need and our own helplessness, and we find ourselves giving up on ourselves to a point where we can look up. So ultimately, it's up. You know what I mean. And we give up looking at ourselves. And we look up and we see Christ. And everything else fades away, doesn't it? We stop thinking so much about ourselves and our own sin. We start fixing our eyes on our Savior. It's that great quote by whoever said it. I can't remember. Take for every one look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. It's like, yes, that's it, right? All of a sudden, everything just falls into place. There is a settleness that comes upon our souls, a freedom that comes into our hearts where we know that we can just defy anything, defy our sin itself to touch us. We're safe in the arms of our Savior. Holy Spirit can bring that upon us if we pray for it. Let me finish this with this from Luther. I'll begin to finish. Luther had a long-standing battle with feeling forgiven, knowing objectively that he was forgiven, and feeling condemned. And so he, he likes to have backwards and forwards with, with, um, with Satan. <laughs> and this is, this is what he writes. He, he, he writes this about his experience of, of fighting this fight. He says, when the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. And I'll reply, no. For I fly to Christ, who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sin and try and bring me into heaviness and distrust and despair and hatred and contempt and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself, so that with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet. For Christ died for sinners. Amen? Accusations become weapons because we fly to Christ. As often as you remind me, as often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ, my Redeemer, on whose shoulders and not mine lie all my sins. So when you say I am a sinner... Amen. Oh, we've got some projectile vomiting happening in the front. Hey, Dave. Dave's hiding. Shame. Yeah, go on, Dave. I think think you're up, mate. (laughs) Dave's hiding in the sound desk. Yeah. Shame, poor Roman. 
and be able to keep beat with that, so we'll just give you guys a minute. Shame. LD. In the mum's room, can you guys hear me? We might just have like a, just avoid this area for the next, until we clean that up, okay? Is that all right? Does that make AD? Yeah, yeah, so no one, keep kids from walking you here because we don't want to spread that um, shame. That's, where do you go from there? By the way, it'll be worth checking out the YouTube after this because this moment will live on the internet forever on YouTube and say, hi guys, there's vomit down here now. <laughs> and I can't think of a reasonable segue. I got one. <laughs> when Satan attempts to project <laughs> the vomit of his accusations all over you, right? How's that? Will that work? <laughs> Well, let's go with that one, all right? It's like, yeah, you can't, you can't do any. That's just one of those things, guys. That happens. That happened. That's so great. We're just gonna have to enjoy that. Lean into it a little bit, although not step in it. Um, lean into the funny. I'm gonna go with that because that's great. <laughs> when Satan projects the vomit of his accusations upon you, right? Pray for a little Roman. We. Fly to Jesus. What does he say? As, as often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ. Isn't that great? As often as you remind me of my sin, you remind me of Jesus. Christian, as often as you get reminded of your sin, cast your eyes to Jesus. On his shoulders and not mine lie all my sins. So when you say I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but you comfort me immeasurably. I love that. Taking the sword out of his hand to slit his throat with it. If you feel condemned in Christ, there is no condemnation. Do you feel forgiven? Do you feel accused? Do you feel accused? Tell the devil, thanks for the reminder of my sin. You pointed me back to Jesus. Thanks for the service. All right, that's all he can do. All right, let's finish up. I'll get the band back up if that's all right. Again, watch your step. The cross, it, it does change our tomorrow. It really does. On that final day, right? Our names are written in the book of life so that we can face that final day with confidence, with joy, because it is in him, not in us, that lies our forgiveness. And the cross changes our today. Why? Because it frees us from our sin. It frees us from a sense of condemnation and guilt. We can live free. We can live free. We can rest in the love of our Savior. What we're going to do now are we're going to change plan. Okay, we were going to. I was going to have you guys come up during the next song to receive um, elements, but I don't want to have walking around here. So what we'll do is I might actually ask some um, stewards to hand out the, the elements. Um, so if I can get three people to hand those out. We're going to respond to... Um, I literally just said three. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, yeah, go on now. Okay, uh, in the next song, right? So um, as we... If you've... 
let me say this first, if you're visiting among us today, you're very welcome to, to join us in communion. Um, but I do ask that if you take communion, it's because you've, you've made this profession of faith yourself. If you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, I would say hold off because the Bible does command us to take this really seriously. Um, and yeah so, yeah, so if you'd like to respond in faith today, you are very welcome to take communion today. If you're visiting from another church, for example. Um, today, as we take the, the bread, what are we doing? We're reminding ourselves the body of Jesus broken for us. His perfect life lived in that body for us. He's reminding us of what he has done, his life in our stead, the gift of righteousness received by faith. When we take the cup, as we drink the juice, we remember the blood of Jesus poured out for us. The blood of the covenant, forgiveness of sin that we receive through faith. That justice on the cross was executed fully and finally in Christ. So as we drink the juice, as we take the blood today, we are reminding ourselves of the cross, aren't we? Receiving again that grace. So what we're going to do is I'm going to let you take your communion in, in your own time today, um, in the next song. So as you feel led, you can respond through communion. Let me pray for us then. Lord, it is a sobering thought to consider that great white throne and our total need for your grace on that day, Lord. Lord, we can't work our way out of the hole that we're in. Lord, we know that more of us cannot be the answer because it's us that got us in the problem in the first place, Lord. We need divine rescue from above, Lord. And in the cross, that is what we have. So we thank you for your provision, Lord, that you made a way for us. You made a way for us. Lord, as we take these elements, as we take the bread and we drink the juice, Lord, we are reminding ourselves of exactly what you have done. Lord, as we eat the bread, we are, we are receiving you receiving that grace. As we drink the blood, we are receiving you into us. It's a beautiful image you've given us, Lord, as we eat and we drink, that we proclaim your death. Lord, for those of us here who aren't sure what to do with this, aren't sure where they stand with you, Lord, I pray that they would just know without a doubt, Lord, the extended hand of friendship that you extend them right now that you are inviting them in. You're inviting them in. Inviting them in to know you. Inviting them into a, a new kind of life, which is defined not by their past or their failures, Lord, but by your endless mercy. Lord, I pray that they would know your love. They would know what it costs you. And that you desire to have them. So for those people, I pray, we give them boldness to pray in their own hearts now. Thank you for the cross. Pray a confession of their own sin before you. And they receive your grace.
as we sing this next song, Lord, before the throne. Lord, we're going to be singing the words. We're going to be singing about this day, Lord. We stand before the throne, Lord, and we have a perfect plea. Great high priest. knowledge of what it is you've done to us done for us Lord would we not just be forgiven Lord but would we feel would we experience the forgiveness you've given us Lord by the power of your spirit that we might walk in freedom for all these things in the name of Jesus amen so you're welcome to take the communion in your own time today thanks